You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, um, my preparation for last week's sermon was uh, about as good as it could possibly be. It was pretty much a dream come true. Sometimes they just come together really, really well. Like when I, so I, I, when I was preparing for that sermon, I read through Psalm 3, saw the superscript, went to read 2 Samuel, and it just the whole thing just fell out, like into your lap because God loved me, and it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. The paradigm, the case study, the relevance, how it was going to connect to us, all of it just fell out of the Bible into my very grateful lap, and, and it was good. My preparation for this week's sermon was basically the opposite. Uh, I had read something that gave me a hint about where I wanted to go for this one, and so I had a pretty good idea of where the sermon was headed, and I just needed to double check, right? So good pastors do. is just, I think that this might be right. I'm going to go check a couple of commentaries and make sure that I'm at least in the right track, and then I can run with it. So I did that, went to some commentaries to verify that connection, <clears throat> and then the commentaries just like opened up this labyrinth, and I was like Alice falling down that rabbit hole, like, bye-bye. <laughs> um, I ended up at the Bethlehem College and Seminary Library with a commentary stack about this tall, trying to figure a way out of the confusion that had been opened up for me, because that's what I kept running into, was this confusion. Because the more I read, the more difficult this psalm became. There were translation issues. What do particular words mean? There were context issues. There were structure issues, all of which then fed each other and and created an increasing uncertainty about what the psalm says. And I absolutely hate preaching from uncertainty. I hate it. It's one of the most difficult things is when a passage in the Bible is not as clear as I would like it to be for me so that I can stand up here and say, thus saith the Lord to you. But kept praying, kept reading, kept thinking, and God was gracious. And I think I've settled on a way to address that confusion and planting our feet on some clarity. Because there is a lot of clarity here. Don't misunderstand me. So the outline for this one is very simple. I'm just going to walk through the psalm, and I'm going to highlight the confusion and the clarity. Okay, so I'm going, to, I'm going to point out to you the places where there's divergence on what exactly is going on that makes it hard. And then I'm going to point out to the places where it's pretty clear exactly what's happening here. And the nice thing about it is it basically alternates verse by verse, like... Verse 1, 3, 5, and 7, all pretty clear. 2, 4, 6, 8, not clear. You know what that means, right? Me either. I don't know. I don't know why it does that. I don't know why it jumps back and forth. But then I'm going to spend some time at the end applying both the ambiguous and the clear to our situation today, to our lives today. So that's the outline. So Psalm 4, you should know, is an evening psalm. Last week's psalm, Psalm 3, was a morning psalm. Okay? In fact... Uh, commentators note that Psalms 3 to 6, this stretch where we're in, actually seem to give us an alternating uh, sequence of morning and evening, morning and evening. That's often how the Psalms were used. In the Middle Ages, monks would wake up in the morning, like at 3 a.m., and they would pray Psalm 3, and then before they went to bed, they would pray Psalm 4, and back and forth and back and forth with these morning and evening. So Psalm 3, 5, I lay down and slept, like last night, I woke again this morning, the Lord sustained me. Psalm 4, 8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep because you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I'm about to go to bed. Psalm 5, 3, O Lord, in the morning hear my voice. 
In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Psalm 6, 6. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. So you hear morning and evening, morning and evening. Psalm 4 also has a number of links to Psalm 3. The word for distress, you gave me relief when I was in distress, is related to the word for foes in 3.1. Call and answer, answer me when I call, for 4.1, are used in chapter, or Psalm 3, verse 4. The phrase, my honor, how long will my honor in 4.2, is the same as my glory. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory. It's the exact same phrase. Maybe why these psalms are linked together. And then there's, of course, the connection between lying down and sleeping that shows up in both. And this leads some commentators to argue that that superscript from Psalm 3, when David fled from Absalom, applies to both of them. Even some of them going so far as to say, David wrote one of them in the morning when he was running away, and then he wrote the next one at night after he'd stopped running for the evening, right? Like they go together that much. That was actually the thought that I'd read, and I thought, oh, that's, that's cool, I'm going to run with that. And then I got in there and it was not, not so simple. And so it could mean that we should read the Absalom story in the background of Psalm 4, David fleeing Jerusalem just like we did last week. Other commentators, however, argue that actually the setting is very different from that. They claim that a number of themes in this psalm actually suggest perhaps some kind of natural disaster, particularly a drought. In 2 Samuel 21, we're told about a drought during the reign of David. And so what would be happening in this psalm is people are blaming the king for the absence of rain and fruitfulness in the land. Who will show us some good? Where's the good? Where's the produce? Where's the, where's the fruit of the land? Where's the rain? And as a result, they're going after other gods. They're seeking after lies. And David is insisting in the face of that, no, the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. He hears us. We should pray to him. We should offer right sacrifices and put our trust in the Lord, not go after the false gods. that make sense? That was the other alternative. And finally, others say, look, we just can't know what was going on. Like, we just don't know. We don't know Absalom. We don't know rain. We don't know anything. We just have what we have, and we have to live with the ambiguities and the confusions. And now, matter, no matter which way you go with that, there's even more questions about the structure, like, if you read through it, as, as Kyle was just reading it, who is David talking to at various points, right? Like, um, who's being addressed? Where are the transitions? Like in 4.2, he seems to be addressing his enemies, right? Oh, men, how long will my honor be turned to shame, right? He's talking to people who are opposed to him and to God. In verse 6, he seems to be addressing his friends who might be doubting God's goodness, Many are saying, who will show us some good? Like these are, I'm trying to encourage these people. Now in the middle there, be angry and do not sin. Who's he talking to? Is it the people from above, the men of rank? Or is it the people down below, his friends? And it's not clear. A couple of minor translation issues. For example, um, 4.1 in your ESV is, you have, you have given me relief when I was in distress. The NIV translates that, give me relief from my distress. So is the psalmist asking for something or declaring something God already did? Same thing happens in verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have versus put more joy in my heart than they have. That's what the NIV has. So there's a question. Is he asking for something? That's a minor thing, but it affects how, what you think is happening in the psalm. And so as I looked at this, like I said, the confusion seemed to mainly show up in 246. 
And then I would get clarity and help in 1, 3, 5, and 7. And so let's walk through it briefly together. Number one, four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Clearly here, clearly here, a request to God for, uh, to answer the psalmist's prayer. And it seems that it's an individual request. This was helpful to me, okay? Not necessarily a corporate request. He's not saying, help us. He's saying, answer me. You have given me relief. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. There's an individual aspect to the psalm. And that's what made me think, hey, maybe it's Absalom chasing him away. Help me, God. My son's after me. David is in danger, and he's asking God for help. Verse 2. And so here the psalmist addresses men of rank. Oh, men, you might have a little footnote, men of rank, or wealthy men, prominent men, important men. But who are these men? Are they the prominent men who were on Absalom's side? That's one option. And is it that David's honor is being insulted by them because they've gone over to Absalom's side? That's one possibility. However, loving vain words is literally loving vanity. And seeking after lies is a phrase that sometimes gets used in the Bible for idolatry. So you're loving vanity. Idols are vain. The idols of the nations are vain and empty. Seeking after lies. So seeking after lies would be idolatry. And idolatry doesn't really show up in the Absalom story. That's not, that's not the issue there. But it would be the issue if the people, these men of rank, are abandoning God because of hardship and going after false gods to deliver them. That would make sense. In that case, it would not be David's personal honor that's being turned into shame, but his glory, God himself. How long will you turn my glory, the glorious one, Yahweh, how long will you turn him into an insult? How long will you turn him into a byword by rejecting him? So it's hard to understand the particular problem David's facing. Come to verse 3, more clarity here. Regardless, whichever way it is, whether he's running from Absalom or whether he's rebuking idolaters, David is clear he reminds these men, God has set apart the godly for himself. He's going to hear me. He's going to hear me. He's confident in God's election. God has set him apart. And because of that, he knows that God is listening. If you belong to God, you have his ear. He is open to your cry for help. So it's clear in verse 3. Verse 4, a little bit more confusion. Four commands in that verse. Be angry. Don't sin, ponder or speak to yourself, literally is what it says, speak to your own heart and be silent. Now that first word is one of the translation issues. You're, you're, what we read says be angry and the reason that we say be angry is because that's how the Greek translation of the Hebrew original translates it. It says be angry, that's the word. And that's what Paul, when Paul seems to quote this verse in Ephesians 4, he also says be angry. That's okay, I'm with Paul. But the Hebrew scholars tell us that's not really the normal word for anger. It's actually more, it's the word tremble. Normally it's the earth that does this. The earth quakes, we had in California, right? Tremble and don't sin. Be agitated. Be up, upheave, upheaved. Is that, a, is that a word? Upheaved. Be upheaved and don't sin in your upheaving. And then this pondering, this I, what is he supposed to say to himself? Some commentators say this is a parallelism. So be angry is parallel to speak to yourself. Don't sin is parallel to be silent, okay, which would mean keep it inside. Like if you're angry, like don't act out on it. Don't let it go anywhere. Like rein it in. Rein in those agitated, angry feelings. Hold them in. On the other hand, you might see it as a progression. 
Like, you're angry? Don't sin. Instead, go think about it. Go sit on your bed, be quiet, get before God, talk to yourself, calm yourself down. Again, which, how are we supposed to read that? A little bit more confusion. And then who's he talking to? Who is he addressing? Is it his friends who are with him? Like, don't be angry at those idolaters over there. Or is he talking to the idolaters? You guys, be angry. That's weird. Like, why tell these men of rank, hey, be angry, but don't sin when you're angry and seeking after other gods. It's odd. It's, it was confusing. This is what the rabbit hole felt like. But I got help. Four or five, clarity. Offer right sacrifices. Sacrifice right sacrifices. Trust in the Lord. Hard to be more clear than that. David is communicating, whether it's to his friends or enemies, don't go after other gods. Offer right sacrifices to God from a right heart in the right way and trust him. Okay? But again, still a little bit of confusion. If he's running from Absalom, how are they going to sacrifice anything? They don't have the temple. They're running, they're running away from the temple. So David could be urging his friends and his enemies, put your trust in the Lord. That's clear enough. Or six, a little bit more confusion. Who is asking this question? And where does it end? What is the question? Our, our uh, ESVs have. Um, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. That's all the question. That's what the other people are saying. I actually think it makes more sense to say, the people are saying, who will show us some good? And David's saying, look up there. Lift up your eyes upon us, O Lord. Let, he's going to shine on us. So David is the one directing them to the answer to their question. But who is he talking to? Is it his friends? Is it his, who's saying this? Who, is it his enemies? Is it the drought? That's, again, that confusion. Either way, though, in that verse, we do get a little clarity. David goes to this Aaronic blessing, not ironic, Aaronic, meaning Aaron, the high priest who said, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And David takes that and he turns it into a prayer. Lord, shine on us. Lift up your face upon us. And then we get 4-7 more clarity. This one's really clear. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Whoever it is, if it's Absalom feasting, if it's these idolaters who think that the fertility gods gave them the produce in the midst of their parties, God, you're better. That's what we just sang. Jesus is better. He's better. You've put more joy in my heart. Whatever earthly goods there may be, God is better. And then, thankfully, 4.8 ends on more clarity, not more confusion. In light of all of this, David says, I can go to sleep. I can lay down. I can sleep. And, and that was actually really encouraging to me in my preparation right, to get there and go, all right, I'm still feeling a little agitated. Not sure exactly, but I can go to sleep. Not the, he's, he's confident not in the support of wealthy men, not in earthly prosperity, because, but God alone makes him dwell in safety. So summarize, there's some original context that is unclear. Who is he talking to? Where do the shifts happen? What do some of these exhortations mean? Those are, that's unclear. However, despite that, there is much that is clear. God is the one who will deliver David from his distress. David knows God has chosen him and will hear his prayer. David exhorts others to offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord no matter what, and he knows that when God's face shines, he is better than every earthly good. So David can go to sleep.
Now, in light of that, both the confusion, the ambiguity, and the clarity, I've got three applications, and they get increasingly lengthy. So the first two are short. Last one's going to camp. Number one. The first is a simple and is based on the image from 4.1. I just, this was really encouraging to me. I hope it really encourages some of you. And it's give us room, oh God. The, the image there when you have given me relief when I was in distress is an image of narrowness to enlargement. Okay? So you have given me room when I was cramped. That's what it says. Okay? There's a narrowness. Okay? So David feels trapped like the walls are closing in. In. He's being suffocated. He can't see a way out. And God brings relief by enlarging him, by giving him space, by giving him room. You get that image? That's a really powerful and helpful image. And it could be literal or metaphorical. Like it could literally be, right? If this is Absalom, if that's what's going on, David's like, I'm surrounded by enemies. I'm running away and I'm trapped. Give me relief. You have given me relief. You made a way. Hushai saves the day, and I'm out. And where does he go? Into a wide open land. I can breathe. I can breathe. Literally, God can change our circumstances to bring relief. That's literal. But isn't it the case that often it's that spiritual enlargement that's more necessary? Like, it's not just that we need the circumstances to change, but it's our hearts themselves that are cramped. It doesn't matter how much God adjusts the furniture here, right? The, the, the danger, the crampedness, the narrowness, the suffocation is internal, and we need God to give us air spiritually. Op- like, open up. Let me get a deep spiritual breath because I can't breathe, and that's what we need. And David says, God has given me relief when I was in distress. I just want you to take that image with you if you feel that today, if you feel the walls closing in, if you feel that crampedness and suffocation, go here and be encouraged. Answer me when I call. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Number two. Spurgeon was really helpful. Pointed out something in this passage that I wouldn't have ever thought about. This is what's great about Spurgeon. He sees in this psalm a model for evangelism and mission. Because much of the psalm is not addressed to God, but to other people. So he sees this as a model for winning the ungodly to Christ. So think about it. David begins by upbraiding them, communicating disapproval for their actions. Oh, men, how long will my honor, my glory be turned into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after lives? He communicates the disapproval of God on the actions of the ungodly. So there's a place for holy provocation consternation, frustration at the actions of the ungodly. How long is that going to go on? How long are you going to keep doing that? That's the first step. Second, he doesn't just vent his anger at them. He instructs them. He teaches. Know this. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. He hears when I call to him. There's instruction. He doesn't just vent his anger. He teaches them about the blessings of knowing God. God has set me apart for his purposes. And because of that, he hears me. When I call to him, he hears me. He doesn't hear you. It's implied, right? You're seeking after lies, but he hears me. So David doesn't just vent, he teaches. And then he doesn't just teach, 
he exhorts, be angry, don't sin. Ponder in your own beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Okay, so he expresses disapproval for sin. That's necessary. He communicates and teaches about the blessings of knowing God. That's important. But even at the end of that, you also have to call people to something. What do they need to do? And what they need to do is offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. Turn from your idolatry to God. Trust in him, not the lies. Trust in him, not the vanity. Call people to something. So there's disapproval, there's teaching, there's exhortation and calling, and then this is what got cool. There's testimony. There's testimony. Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon me. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when grain and wine abound. Let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. Let me tell you what, how God is better than any earthly party, any earthly joy. So we testify with our words to the hope and joy we have when the face of God shines upon us. But then finally, we don't just testify, we live it out. We actually go to bed. In peace, I lie down and sleep. We embody, we practice what we preach by laying down and sleeping under the watchful care of our Almighty Father. So we communicate disapproval, we instruct about the truth, we exhort others to respond, we testify to our own experience, and then we practice what we preach according to Spurgeon. Psalm 4 is a model for mission. That's the second application. Third, camp here for a minute. This may seem like an odd one. You may not, as you're listening, I don't know if you would have thought this. That's not, it's just where I'm at in my life. What made me go here, and then, I, and then as I got deeper and deeper, it felt like, I bet this is more relevant for than just me, okay? And it had to do with the relevance of Psalm 4 for our social media and entertainment habits. It's, it's, it's weird. I get it. It's, it's an odd, maybe not the first place, okay? And I'm prefacing it again with, this is about our, okay? This is, I'm inviting you into my own struggling and wrestling here, I've been reading some thought-provoking things on this, and then I just kept seeing things line up. I kept seeing connections to the temptations we feel in the modern world when it comes to the things we watch and listen to and consume. For example, the psalm exhorts us to ponder in our own hearts on our beds and be silent. Ponder in your heart on your bed and be silent. It presses us to contemplation and reflection on our lives and on our emotional states so that we don't fall into sin. But today, we don't ponder on our beds in silence. We binge Netflix on our beds in silence. We don't ponder on our beds. We scroll Twitter and Instagram on our beds. We don't seek to rein in our agitation our internal turmoil. We actually follow people deliberately <laughs> or listen to people on the television or on the radio who stir up our agitation and feed it. We willingly subject ourselves to influences in our social media and entertainment habits that awaken in us agitation, anxiety, anger, envy, covetousness, and discontentment. 
So I just read that and I thought, ponder and be silent. Like, speak to yourself, talk to yourself, get quiet. I'm like, we do not do this. We do anything we can to avoid this. And then that made me think of some C.S. Lewis stuff, right? Consider this lament about loving vanity and seeking after lies. Like, is there a better description for much of our entertainment consumption than vanity, emptiness, and lies? Screw tape. Screw tape letters. Lewis describes the dim uneasiness of Christians when they're drifting from God. Dim uneasiness. This is what he says. We begin to, uh, there's a reluctance to sit and ponder and engage with God. And as a result, we practically beg for opportunities to avoid silence and contemplation. We look for distractions lest we be alone with our thoughts. And this cuts us off from happiness. Like the light of God's face does not shine upon us because we're too busy trying to avoid him. And then the pleasures of vanity and flippancy become, they both, we, we seek them more and they do less for us. Like they become less satisfying and yet we pursue them. We seek after them more and more and more. And Lewis says the devils get us to waste time not only in conversations that we enjoy with people that we like, but they distract us with conversations that we hate with people that we don't like on topics that really don't interest us. And yet there we are, like that little meme, that little picture. Honey, come to bed. I can't. There's someone who's wrong on the internet. Screwtape says, you can keep your patient up late at night staring at a cold fire in a dead room. And I think today Lewis would write, you can keep him staring at a bright box, either the big bright box or the little bright box in a dead room. Our best years, therefore, are stolen away, not in sweet sins, but in a drear, listen to this phrase. This is written in the uh, 40s, 40s, people. In a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and it knows not why. In the gratification of curiosities so feeble that the man is only half aware of them. In whistling tunes or watching clips on YouTube that he does not like. Or in the long dim labyrinth of daydreams that have not even lust or ambition to give them relish. But which once chance association and his habits has started them, the creature's too weak and too feeble to fight off. Just autopilot. That's amazing diagnosis. And the amazing thing here is that our shows and our media habits can feed us even when they know their lies. That's, like you know, you know that the Instagram feed of your friends is not telling you the whole truth about their lives. You know that right here. You know that this is a carefully curated, selective presentation for public consumption of all of the things that they're doing that hides all of the hard things or messy things or whatever. You know that, and yet you still still fear missing out. You still look at the grain and new wine abounding, and you think, why not me? It breeds a low-grade dissatisfaction that goes searching for a cause. I feel off, I don't know why. And then we invent reasons, we blame others, and we soak up more toxins. To put it in biblical terms, this is 
connecting some things from when Matthew Lapine was here last week. We become conformed to the pattern of this world. That's how worldliness creeps in. It shapes our desires. It forms our habits, our instincts. We read articles and news stories, and we become outraged and angered, and that emotion stamps us, and so then we go back and we seek it again and again, day after day, hour after hour. And that's why I came around eventually to thinking that the ambiguity of what is it, be angry, be agitated, be upheaved, what's going on, I thought maybe that's actually a good thing. Because it could be agitation and anger. It could be agitation and anxiety. It could be agitation and envy and covetousness and discontentment. It could be some combination of all of those. But the common thread is that in the modern world, our entertainment consumption and our social media habits are affecting us in deep and unpredictable ways. They make us agitated. They make us reactive, not responsive. They make us combustible, not stable. Or, let me... That kind of puts the, like, it's all their fault. They make us. Stop making us, Netflix. How dare you, right? In order to stress our responsibility, by virtue of our habits, we are making ourselves reactive, volatile, discontented, agitated. Now, how does the psalm help us then? Okay, that's diagnosis. Let me close with help. help. Here's a number of things. Number one. We can pray for God to enlarge us, to take us outside of the little entertainment prisons that we build. As one commentator put it, though, God often uses suffering to enlarge us more than prosperity. So we want to be enlarged. How does he enlarge? Number two, we can remember that we belong to God that he set us apart for himself and his purposes, and therefore we have his ear. And that helps to stabilize us in our agitation. Like when you're agitated, angry, envy, doesn't matter. What, don't sin. What do you do? He, you have his ear. You can go to him with that, whatever it is. Not your television, not your phone. And let me highlight one important dimension of this. David says, know that the Lord has set apart the godly, for himself, but this is David, okay? Adulterous, murdering David, who says the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, which means godliness is not fundamentally, fundamentally about what you've done, but about what God has done for you. It's not about your past, it's about your posture to him. David was not godly in his conduct. He was godly in his response to his conduct by repenting and trusting in the Lord. And therefore, David, because David repented, because he acknowledged his sin, he was numbered among the godly, among the faithful, not the faithless. And he said, God has set me apart. And you can say that too. Number three, offer right sacrifices to the Lord. This dovetailed really nicely with that Romans 12, don't be conformed to the world. Because the alternative is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Like the way that you obey, offer right sacrifices today, is by offering your body as a living sacrifice to God. That is your spiritual worship. And that means that we put down our phones and we go to bed. This is speaking to me here, okay? I'm not talking to you like I, did, like I do this well. My, the gap between my ideal and my practice 
is shameful. But I want to put it down and go to bed. I want to wake up and go to the Lord, not to my account. It may mean offering our bodies as living sacrifices, may mean that we quit Netflix, or you delete your Facebook account, or you ditch your smartphone, and just pause there and think about how unthinkable that feels to probably 95% of us. How long will my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vanity? And seek after life. So just, I just want you to, I'm trying to lodge that. I'm not telling you what everybody should do. I just want you to feel the same force of the word that I'm feeling. And I know that this is coming. It may mean that we need a greater degree of asceticism. And that's coming from the guy who literally wrote the book on enjoying the things of earth, okay? Like I wrote an entire book about enjoying creation, enjoying culture and technology, and it's, I know it's good to be informed about the good and bad things that are happening out in the world. I know it's good to have some cultural literacy for the sake of evangelism. I know it's good to just enjoy things and rest and, and recreate. I know all of that is good, and I know all of it's dangerous. And it's especially dangerous when it's always with you, and you can't turn it off. One of the, comment, one of the articles I read, I'll post the resources that I'm pulling from a little bit at the, on the sermon uh, page, said... Netflix, by which he meant all of our social media entertainment consumption, behaves like a principality and a power. Like it wants you. That's why when you finish watching one episode, it immediately starts the next. It's like, no, no, you can't leave. There's another one. And we have this big box on our hearths, just like the household gods of old, right? Right center in the middle of our living rooms that calls to us and says, watch me, demanding our attention, demanding our desires, Shaping our desires. So he just said, think about that, and there's some resistance that's required here. One of the authors said that we live in an age in which ordinary virtue takes heroic effort. Ordinary virtue takes heroic effort. Finally, fourth thing that the psalm directed me to. Romans 1 continues, don't be conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. So we don't just offer our bodies as living sacrifices, we renew our minds. How? By placing our trust in the Lord. By knowing that we ponder in our own hearts, we speak to ourselves, we preach to ourselves, God, you are the God of my righteousness. You are gracious and merciful. You are better than every earthly good. You are the good that makes every good truly good. There is no good apart from God. Without him, nothing is good. With him, everything can be good. And so we have more joy than they have in their enjoyment of earthly goods. Better is one day in his courts than thousands elsewhere. I would rather be a butler in God's house than than a Lord in the tents of wickedness. His face shining upon us makes all goods truly good, and he's the one who enables us to lie down and sleep in safety, which brings us here. Because here the face of God is lifted up to shine upon you, Here the ear of God is open to our cry. Jesus offered the ultimate 
right sacrifice of his body and blood on our behalf. His glory was turned into shame for three days, and God highly exalted him above every other name. And because of that, you're welcome to this table to feast upon the grain and the new wine. So come and welcome to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I do pray. I don't have a prescription for every person in this congregation about how to work out the resistance to the pulls of the modern age. There's no blueprint that one size fits all. It takes wisdom. Wisdom about the world, wisdom about ourselves and our tendencies. And so I pray, God, that you would just take the truth from the psalm and you'd drive it home and then you'd help us to live it, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, to renew our minds so that we know your will. Oh God, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite the pastors to come for the bread. This, uh, this meal is for the members of City's Church, but if you're a guest with us and you have put your trust in the Lord, you are welcome to join us at our family table. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.